It's week 28 of 2018, and today on TechNado, we're talking about some Apple product announcements, including some upgrades to the 15-inch MacBook, as well as some Android announcements, some Microsoft things, and then snakes on a plane for some reason. That's all coming up on the TechNado, starting right now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Technado. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, and I am joined by Don Pizzette. Don, how are you doing today? I am doing swell back in the office after a little trip and ready to get back going on the tech news. Uh, you know, some weeks we have to scramble a bit to find enough articles to fill up and, and you know talk about all the exciting things that are going on. This week it was the opposite. It was, we don't have enough room for all this stuff today. What are we going to drop off? There is a lot going on in the world of IT right now. We could do an after-show podcast of just the stories we had to drop um, to fit in this week, so maybe we'll we'll look into doing the the podcast like like Talking Dead or after Walking oh, Dead, geez. Talking Technado, maybe get yeah. Chris Hardwick in here. It, no, we need to get somebody who does the really awkward interview where you can tell they don't know what questions to ask and you just sit uh, there staring at each other. Yeah, it'll be awesome. Zach Galifianakis <laughs> between two fern style. All right, well, uh, let's start off this week. We have an update from a story we talked about last week. Uh, there was a Ticketmaster breach, uh, but. Uh, it turns out it wasn't just Ticketmaster. So uh, this this article on ZDNet, Ticketmaster breach was part of a larger credit card skimming effort analysis shows. So does this mean, Don, that they, they went after the, the card processor as opposed to going after Ticketmaster directly? Well, remember, um, in, in this particular breach, the cause was not so much Ticketmaster. I mean, ultimately, it was Ticketmaster's fault, but that they were leveraging a chat support service, you right. know, the can I help you type little pop-ups that we see on so many web pages. And they had placed the code, the little one-line JavaScript code to embed that chat player into their checkout page, which is supposed to be a secure page. And the attackers found a way in via that chat system. And because of that, really anybody running that same chat system in the same way, using it on a payment page, would be susceptible to the same exact attack. Now, the analysts don't really say, is it Ticketmaster was first, and then it started spreading out based on other people using the same chat program, or was it already hitting a bunch and Ticketmaster just happened to get wrapped up? And it looks like it was already hitting a bunch of companies. Ticketmaster just happened to be one of them. They, they There might be companies that don't even know this is happening yet because yeah. of the type of attack. They maybe tested it on smaller sites and then said, okay, who are the big fish? That happens a lot of times. Now. But uh, yeah, it says 800 sites in total um, were affected by this. And it makes me kind of wonder, like you said, it, it, you know, it's ultimately Ticketmaster's data that uh, that's exposed. So from a, GDR, a GDPR perspective, they're the ones uh, that are, are liable. But I wonder if any of that liability goes back to uh, to the chat software company or at, at that point or it was it it wasn't necessarily a flaw with their system as much as a flaw with where that that code was put it was where the code was put and and it is ticketmaster's staff that put the code there so i i would i would be surprised if this ended up being the fault of the the support company yeah um Although, you know, maybe maybe this was a known flaw that they should have fixed, but it was still there, and, and that's how Ticketmaster got breached. We, we don't know, you know, those those little details. But it does goes to show that it's not just targeted at Ticketmaster. It is affecting uh, other organizations, so be on the lookout for that type of exploit in your environment. 
Definitely. Uh, well, let's switch gears now to um, some new news, if you will, um, from this week. So our first article we have over here on Mac Rumors, uh, MacRumors.com. Apple launches 2018 MacBook Pros uh, with 8th Gen Core, up to 32 gigs of RAM, 3rd Gen keyboard, quad core on 13-inch and more. So um, this is exciting. And I thought we were going waiting till the end of the year, though, to talk about the new hardware. Yeah. So uh, rumors have been flying like wild. Yeah. Apple has a an event coming up. Uh, they usually do like a September event to announce new iPhones. And then in October, the new iPhones go on, or go on sale. Uh, so everybody was assuming that there was going to be a hardware refresh coming up at that September launch event. Uh, Apple just out of the blue this morning. This is fresh as of today. Uh, just this morning, uh, announced that they are releasing new MacBooks. The store pages have already been updated, so you can go and order these right now. Um, they haven't announced anything on the iMacs, Mac Minis, uh, iPads, iPhones, or whatever. And we're expecting new hardware across the board. Even even the Apple Watch is supposed to be like a Series Four coming out. So uh, so just a, a across the board a hardware refresh uh, on the MacBook side. If you're a fan of the 13-inch MacBook, it really hasn't changed much at all. The 13-inch MacBook still has the same processor. Uh, I think they added one extra storage option. You can get a two-terabyte drive now, but um, but otherwise, the 13-inch MacBook hasn't changed. All the changes have really come in the 15-inch MacBook. The 15-inch MacBook, you can get with up to 32 gigs of RAM, and that's a big deal. There's a lot of us here complaining that 16 gigs isn't enough anymore. Uh, 32 gigs of RAM is an option. Uh, you know, Obviously... Apple's big thing is they want you to have battery life. They want you to have 10-hour battery life. And in the 13-inch, I think they just can't get that done. In the 15-inch, they got more room for extra battery, and so they're able to get you the 10 hours. But I was also surprised to see that they added support for up to an i9 processor, and they added uh, discrete graphics. So you can get it with a Radeon, uh, I believe it's a 570. Uh, it's either a, you have a choice between like a 555 or a 570. And the 570 is like a significantly better card. So if you're going to get one, you should definitely go that route. But, uh, and I, you know, I don't have it pulled up here, but uh, uh, the one thing that Mac Rumors didn't report on was the exact pricing. And they say like starts at $1799 and $2399 respectively. Um, that's if you get like the most bare stripped yeah. down if unit. If you could do that 32 gigs, you're... You're over $3,000. Yeah. So um, on the 15-inch laptop, I spec'd one out that was basically identical to my current laptop, but with 32 gigs of RAM. I had to go 15. Mine's a 13. Uh, and it was $3,500. Wow. And, you know, people make the argument that Apple hardware is high quality, that it lasts a long time, which I'll, I'll agree with those statements. But $3,500, I mean, you can get laptops from practically any competitor spec'd exactly the same for $2,000, almost 50%. Um, who cares if it's not high quality? You just buy a new one if it breaks. But yeah, And if it doesn't last 10 hours, well, just throw that one away and pull the second one out of your bag that you've bought for the same price. There you go. There you go. You're all set. Or, you know, do what I do. Plug in. It's not so bad. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, you're, you're hard-pressed to find, a, you know, an airplane these days without uh, you know, power. Some, some power options yeah. for you. Uh, what I say you do, though, is you take this useless touchpad up top, and you replace it uh, with the solar panel. Oh, that that was another thing. 15-inch uh, only comes with a touch bar now. Like, you don't have the option. If you don't want the touch bar, you have to get a 13-inch. So really weird decisions, and I wouldn't be surprised because this was unannounced, just like all of a sudden this morning. So basically, they really refreshed the 15-inch MacBook, yeah. not the 13-inch. So I wouldn't be surprised if tomorrow they roll out a new 13 or, or later. I'd love to see something there. Um, I just, a 15-inch laptop's too big for me. Like, it's too bulky to carry around. Uh, you might as well give me a desktop at that point. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see where that goes. But it is nice to see some new hardware and, and coming out in advance of the September event, uh, just, just out of the blue. 
don't know. I like my plan, like the old calculators you used as a kid with the little solar. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Maybe. Um, all right. Sticking with Apple news here. Uh, this kind of a, an amusing story on Engadget, uh, unless you wanted to use your iPhone, then it's not really that funny. Uh, an Apple bug crashed iPhones when you wrote Taiwan uh, in it. This was a code that was designed to appease uh, China. But it did not work so well. And Don, you were explaining to me earlier how it actually works. Yeah. So, um, you know, this was this was going to be our crazy article of the week until we learned the backstory and, and about how this is really a political problem. So it's it's not so funny anymore. But uh, the the Chinese government requires of businesses that that are well doing business in China uh, that they are not allowed to recognize the government of Taiwan. There's a, a lot of bad blood there, and so when Apple sells iPhones in China. They actually remove the emoji for the Taiwanese flag. Uh, so on, on a on a U.S. phone, actually, I haven't tried it on mine. Have you tried it on yours? I haven't. I'll do that while you're talking. So I, I believe on the U.S. phone, and we'll find out here so we can do like truth in uh, reporting, uh, that if you type the word Taiwan, one of the suggestions is the emoji for the Taiwanese flag. Or if you just go into the emoji keyboard, you can find the Taiwanese flag there. Well, in China, they removed that. Yep, and so the flag. It, and it comes up? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So on the on the U.S. iPhones, it comes Free up. Free Nepal. I'm <laughs> nice. Sending this to you right now. Yeah. <laughs> so in uh, in China, if you took an iPhone and you either went to the emoji keyboard to find the Taiwanese flag, or if you type the word Taiwan, instead of the suggestion of the flag coming up, it would freeze the phone. It would cause it to lock up. Uh, it turned out to you know be a technical glitch, but it was because they had to remove that little element because it was required by the Chinese government. So it shows that. Uh, Sometimes the little things that companies do to appease a market that they're selling in can actually have some lasting effects on the phone, and you've got to be careful with that. So, uh, so this would have only been something that affected people in that market, then. Yeah. It, well, you know what I don't know is if you took a U.S. iPhone and changed it to the Chinese region, if it would mm-hmm. affect that. I, I don't think so. I think you actually had to be in China for this to happen, uh, and it would freeze your phone. So it's just a, a little quirky one. These happen from time to time. Remember there was that Indian character yeah. last year that you could type that would crash a phone? That was worse because you could send it to somebody and crash them. Sure, yeah. And Well, this is weird, though, that the phones are made in China, so at some point all of these phones are breaking Chinese laws until they're, they're shipped out, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I guess that I hadn't really thought of it that you way. Should storm the factory and arrest <laughs> everyone. Uh, All right, uh, sticking with Apple here and uh, also with mobile, it looks like. Um, uh, Well, I guess this is not just mobile, but uh, this is over on BGR.com, an exclusive. It's exciting. Uh, Apple to deploy one password to all 123,000 employees, and acquisition talks are underway. So... I know we use LastPass here. Is this basically like a LastPass competitor? 1Password is, is a competitor to LastPass. Um, they focused in the early days of their company on being entirely client-based, so you didn't store anything in the cloud. They've changed since then, so you can store things in the cloud. Uh, but they are very similar. So it's it's a password manager where you store all of your passwords in this vault that gets encrypted, and you have a you know, one password that you use to unlock the vault that gives you access to everything else. For companies like Apple, they're really big. They have a lot of employees, 123,000 employees. So for them to buy a license of one password for each of their 123,000 employees is a lot of money. And so sometimes it's cheaper to just buy the company. And it looks like that's what's going on here. Apple's in talks to buy one password. Uh, one of the nice things about one password is they have multi-platform support. They have a Linux client, they have a Windows client. If Apple acquires them, I'll be curious to see what happens there because Apple has not been the greatest about supporting multi-platform with literally anything. Uh, If you look at 
uh, iTunes for Windows. If you look at iCloud, the iCloud storage for Windows, um, Boot Camp, which is in a horrible state right now compared to previous versions. Like Apple's perfectly happy with ignoring Windows support. Uh, Linux, I'm sure, would be even trivial for them to just drop off. So we'll see what happens. Uh, but if you're a one password user, they're in talks. There are some sites reporting that Apple is buying one password, but it's not like it's talks are still undergoing. So that hasn't been decided. Uh, but it is something that's going on. And I thought it was funny because there was a similar article that Adam and I talked about on another podcast that we do uh, about AT&T acquiring Alien Vault. And Alien Vault is a, a security monitoring solution. They aggregate your logs together and, and do performance analysis and, and security logging, right? And AT&T acquired them. And, and Adam and I were talking about whether or not this is this going to be a service that AT&T offers to customers or continues to sell independently. But likely, AT&T was using Alien Vault internally, and if the costs drive high enough, again, it makes sense. You just buy the company, and now you don't have to pay for the software anymore. I'd, so, I'd love to have that problem of, yeah, how much of that? What did we spend last year on, on, on this restaurant around the corner? Let's just buy the restaurant. Why are we I, doing this? I yeah. want a new Lamborghini every week, so it would be easier just to buy the buy factory. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. It makes makes perfect sense. It really does. <laughs> All right, uh, this one, uh, this next story is a little bit of an update as well. We've talked in the past about the restricted mode uh, on iPhones, how they were launching that, and uh, and now they've they've already found a way to get around restricted mode. Uh, turns out by using cheap accessories. So it looks like just a lightning um, adapter. I don't know if that that one pictured there is even lightning to lightning or. <laughs> or something like that, but uh, uh, allowing allowing you to basically uh, crack that by using a uh, an accessory there. So the one they're showing there is lightning to USB-C. That's a C, okay. Um, they, they also test it with several others, and, and basically it came down to any M5 certified cable. Uh, if you plug it into the phone, you can use that to bypass the um, uh, restricted mode. Now, we reported on restricted mode last week, and that was saying that if you have not unlocked your phone in the last hour then it will basically require you to um, unlock the phone in order to use accessories. And then if it had been enough time, which originally they were reporting, I, I believe it was seven hours that they were saying, that uh, within seven hours, it would not allow you to use the, the lightning port at all uh, until the phone had been unlocked with the proper code. And that was designed to prevent the gray key and other solutions from being able to unlock the iPhones, the stuff that the, the uh, police and other investigative services were using. Well, when these headlines popped out, I had to, to dig into it because I was really curious about how this worked. Uh, and they were saying, look, if the phone goes into this restricted mode and the lightning port is disabled, we found a way to bypass that. But then when you start reading the details, they didn't actually find a way to bypass that. What happens is when you lock your phone, a one-hour timer starts. And if you get the phone and you plug in an accessory like this in under one hour, then it resets the one-hour timer. And you can sit there doing that over and over and over again to keep resetting that one-hour timer and keep the lightning port active. It doesn't unlock the phone. And it doesn't stop it from going into restricted mode if, if you forget and let that hour lapse. The other thing is if you're already in restricted mode, it doesn't unlock it. So there's really only one scenario where this even works. And that is if the police take down a suspect and they get the phone and that suspect had unlocked the phone in less than an hour recently, then they can pop an accessory on there and they just bought another hour. 
and then they can take it off and put it back on again. They just bought another hour, and, and you, you keep doing that to extend out. That is such a rare use case scenario. <laughs> it's so unlikely. I can't see this benefiting anybody. And the other thing is this will be trivial for Apple to patch. So I'm sure they'll have this patch in the next couple of, of days or weeks, and then this goes away. But um, the headline is that USB restricted mode can be bypassed by cheap accessories. That's not true, right? Uh, it can be held at bay. It can be delayed if you're not in restricted mode yet. You're just holding it off. But if you've already gone into restricted mode, this does not get you out. That that headline is is not correct from that standpoint. And well, the one thing that confuses me here, when they they list kind of the steps that police would take, is um, connect the phone, uh, the iPhone to a compatible lighting accessory, and number two, plug in external battery to avoid drain on the battery. Because I guess I don't know if you'd be in restricted mode if the battery died and restarted. But but the third step is place the entire assembly in a Faraday bag. Why why we do we have to do that step? Well, there's the uh, uh, Find My iPhone, and so if it's phoning home to Apple and somebody sends it a lock request or whatever, then it's going to lock, and they wouldn't be able to get past that. So that's probably what that step is. Or uh, who knows? Maybe there's something else, like maybe uh, when they – well, that would make sense. They pop on the accessory. It doesn't phone home for accessories. So, yeah, yeah, I'm not not sure on that one. You're probably right, though, on the the Find My Phone because – if you locked your phone, you're you're putting it basically in restricted mode by mm-hmm. doing that. Okay. Well. Even worse, I mean, if you send the true lock to it, it's it's completely unusable. Yeah. Uh, unless it gets unlocked from the Find My iPhone account. Gotcha. It can't even factory reset it. Interesting. That, that's why it's. It, it, I know this isn't the news story, but uh, it's almost pointless to steal an iPhone these days. That if somebody steals an iPhone and it gets locked or, or blacklisted by a carrier, the only thing you can do is take the screen out and sell the screen for parts. Yeah. The whole rest of the phone is useless. Or it seems like just go sell it on eBay and then um, hide once you've sold it to a person and they get an iPhone that doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, that happens. <laughs> That's the way to do it. Uh, all right, next up, uh, speaking of fantastic security, uh, over on bleepycomputer.com here, uh, you can bypass authentication on HP's I is it ILO 4? ILO. Mm-hmm. ILO 4 servers with 29A characters. And I was telling Don, I... I I, I wonder if someone just sat down and said, all right, let me try with 1A. No, that didn't work. Let me try with 2. And they they got to 29, and it worked. But there's probably a different way people find this. But regardless, it, it shouldn't work. So here's what makes this one really bad. And this is probably the worst security vulnerability that we have to report on today. Um, the ILO board, that stands for Integrated Lights Out Board. <laughs> and on HP servers... They have an ILO board. Most of them have it. Uh, there's some of the really cheap ones that don't, but all, all the good HP servers have it, or HPE. Sorry, it's HP Enterprise yeah, Services. This is HP. enterprise level stuff uh, I know. Here that we're dealing so, with. So uh, HPE servers. So we're talking about the the big uh, Proliant type servers. They have this board in them that you can connect to even if the server is powered off. And once you connect to it, you can see the console of the server. You can turn the server on. You can turn the server off. You can, you can cut its power or you can power it on. You can mount a virtual ISO and actually boot off an installation disk and install an operating system. If you have access to the ILO board, you literally have full control of the server's hardware and everything about it. So that means if you wanted to uh, do like a, a root exploit, try and uh, reset a root password, like you can do all that if you have access to the ILO board. So being able to establish a connection by throwing 29 A's at it 
is a pretty big problem. And uh, if you go to the Bleeping uh, Computer article, they actually have a, a little uh, like an animated GIF where they show uh, throwing that at it and uh, and actually establishing a session. And once you're in there, you can reset the credentials and then you can get at it. Now, two things about this. One, this is really, really bad. You need to patch <laughs> your ILO boards as soon as you can. But two, this is something an attacker shouldn't be able to exploit. And that's because your ILO boards should not be plugged into your regular network. The best practices say that when you have a management board like this, it should be out-of-band management. In other words, not on your regular network. You should have a dedicated network just for management appliances like this that is not connected to the internet and not accessible to everyone inside of your company, but only accessible from the sysadmin or netadmin team from their individual computers. So if your network is properly restricted, then this ILO board exploit really isn't isn't effective at all, right? It's assuming that you'll be able to make that connection. Now, if an attacker has compromised the server, they might be able to access it that way as well, but they've already compromised the server. So I don't like to worry about that scenario because it's kind of pointless. But if you've misconfigured your management network or you've plugged your ILO board into the same network as your server, this is a big deal. You need to get to the HPE website, and they've already pushed out a fix for it. I mean, do, do most people know that? I mean, with devices like this, know that they should have that segmented on its own network? So people who have been through the proper training or read the manual for the ILO board know that. Okay. But there's a lot of IT people who don't read the manuals or don't go to the training, and they just say, look, there's a network jack on there. I know how to plug that in. Yeah. And it gives me a default IP and username. I know how to type that in. And they don't read the manual. So there are people that misconfigure this on a pretty regular basis, but it's it's well documented. That's not the best practice for how you deploy it. If only there was a place where you could get proper IT training yeah. using the yeah. somebody out there probably does using it. the coupon code uh, podcast thirty. Um, <laughs> all right, let's switch gears to our next story over on TechRepublic.com. Uh, this new dual platform malware targets both Windows and Linux systems. Uh, and the sub headline there is the security by minority stance should be. Uh, should come crashing down as cross-compiling makes multi-platform malware development easier. And this is something I think we talked about a little bit last week in terms of, well, I'm not susceptible to viruses mm -hmm. because I'm on this platform. Well, it's just because people don't focus on making viruses for that platform because uh, not many people use it. But uh, that's something that looks like could be going away. Absolutely. And and, it, and it's true. You know, for years, Mac users didn't have to worry about viruses because nobody was writing them for the Mac. They are now, and so Apple takes a stance of, of getting out there and pushing fixes and patches and stuff to prevent that. Um, but it's it's out there a, a good bit. Uh, what's going on here is they're talking about cross-compiling, where a developer writes code once and then is able to compile it into binaries that are suitable for multiple platforms. And the uh, the one they're talking about is called WellMess, uh, or was it MessWell? No, it was WellMess. Uh, the WellMess virus, which... Uh, when it's deployed, its payload actually contains a binary for Linux and a binary for Windows, so a traditional Windows binary and a Linux ELF binary. Uh, and then that way, when it lands on a computer, it first determines which operating system it is, and then it runs the appropriate binary to take over that system and, and carry payload. Um, it does some cookie-based exfiltration of data and a few other things. It's pretty run-of-the-mill as far as your, your viruses. So what's really unique about this one is that it is traveling with the binaries for two different platforms as a part of it. And, uh, you know, those Linux ELF binaries, a lot of times they'll execute just fine on macOS without even modifying them. So they don't say that in the article, but I'd be... Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see a Mac version of this soon, too. In the past, anytime you had a multi-platform virus, it was almost always like a Java virus. 
but now here we've got one just as a compiled binary going around. So we got to be on the lookout for that. And even if you're running a Mac or, or something crazy, some Linux distro or whatever, there are virus solutions or antivirus solutions for you that you can run to help with that. Or if you're ever getting a file you don't trust and you don't have any virus installed, you can go to websites like VirusTotal, which is, is done by Google. You can upload the file. They scan it against like 50 different engines, and they give you the report back on it. So uh, that's another way to test files that you don't necessarily trust. You can test them before you open them. Another reason to just buy two computers as opposed to the new 15-inch MacBook is if you run that uh, that program and it does destroy your system, you've just pulled the other one out. Hey, one file. Yeah. What's the easiest way to clean the virus? Yeah. Throw the computer away, buy a new one. Yeah, a drill. Problem solved. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I always like to um, to lobby to bring in the stories where we talk about hackers being convicted because we read about all these stories and, and half the time, who knows if the person got away and or they're able to uh, track down even where uh, where these malware and, and viruses uh, originate. But uh, we've got one here. Uh, this is on darkreading.com. Uh, about two more uh, convicted in a $30 million massive hacking securities fraud operation. And this one's in- interesting to me uh, because the, the, the two convicted here were, were traders. They were former hedge fund managers. Uh, and and they had actually it sounds like hired out someone uh, to do the hacking for them, uh, where the hack was going after uh, newswire sources, so they could basically find out the the, ar- the articles that were already put in before they were put out to the public and make trades based on that. Yeah, it it really kind of became insider trading. Yeah, right. That there's press releases that are held or embargoed for a certain date. And they found a way to gain access ahead of time. And, and once you have that, you can make stock decisions that are uh, are, are cheating. Right? Yeah. Uh, and, and people get arrested. I mean, uh, we're talking Stewart. about hardcore criminals yeah. like Martha Stewart. Yeah. I mean, thank God we got her off the yeah. streets for, for a little while. Um, I think she's been rehabilitated. Well, yeah, yeah. And now... Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where to go with that exactly. But I'm thinking about now. I'm thinking about like folding laundry and cooking a turkey. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's that's all kind of crazy stuff uh, that happens. And so this is an example of it. And uh, you know, arrested. You're gonna serve some jail time. Um, you could argue that uh, all of the stuff in the subprime mortgage scandal here in the U.S. was worse than this. This is just thirty million dollars, <laughs> uh, and none of those guys went to jail. Sure. But at least these people did. So it is good to see. Uh, you know, occasionally they uh, they catch the bad guy. And honestly, I bet this one was one of those where they, they just got greedy. Because if they had done this once or twice and stopped, they probably never would have been found out. Because I'm I'm guessing uh, that the the newswire wasn't even aware <laughs> that, that they had been breached. That's but true. You, you keep going with something like this, and uh, it's gonna catch up to you. It so. was a uh, it was a SQL injection attack, which is is always avoidable. A good developer sanitizes input before it comes into a system, so it was avoidable. But the the range of the attacks it started in 2010 and went all the way through 2013. So they were doing this over a three year period. Uh, that that. Yeah, that seems a little greedy. Yeah, <laughs> got to know when to when to fold them. Yeah, know when to hold them. Yeah, et cetera, and et know cetera. when to run. Yeah, and to walk away and whatnot. <laughs> uh, all right, I'm going to verse two. Uh, all right, sticking with or is this? No, we did a bleeping computer article before, but this is another one here. Um, bleepingcomputer.com. Black tech APT steals D-Link cert for cyber espionage campaign. I I knew like. Two of those words. All right. Some of these are just silly marketing terms. APT okay. is advanced persistent threat. Of course. Uh, so basically uh, what that just means is that the black tech attack has been going on for quite some time. Uh, and they've been looking to misdirect people to websites to steal personal information. What makes this different and important 
is that they're redirecting you to sites. And a lot of times if the certificates don't match, your browser will let you know. You, you recognize that you're not on a legitimate site. Well, they were able to steal one of the private certificates from D-Link. D-Link manufactures routers, switches, and access points. You can find them at, like uh, here in the United States, you can buy them at Best Buy and Target. Uh, D-Link is, is out there quite a bit. Uh, they're, they're kind of lower end. They're not, I, I've never considered them uh, great hardware. But uh, but it's not. I shouldn't say it that way. It's not bad hardware. It's yeah, just it's consumer cheap, level. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, consumer level. It, that is a much better. Yeah, that's PR marketing way terms. Of, yeah. See, that's why you work in marketing. It is. Um, it's like yeah, you're not supposed to call stuff cheap. You're supposed to say it's less expensive. Yeah. Because then it still sounds glorious. Uh, well, anyhow, what the bleeping computer found was that uh, the uh, black tech attackers have actually got a uh, D-Link certificate, so they can redirect you to a fake D-Link website and actually have a legit D-Link cert on there. Well, fortunately, it's been found out, and the certificate's been revoked, so that'll get flagged now. But there was a period of time before people realized what had happened, and you would get directed to a malicious site, and you would have the green lock up in the corner that would let you know it was a legit certificate and that you were on the right site, that you were actually on the D-Link site when you weren't. That's a big problem, and it really emphasizes the fact that if you're somebody who works with SSL or TLS or, or any type of, of certificate-based system, your private key is the keys to the kingdom, and they've got to be protected. And unfortunately, a private key needs to be stored on your web server so that your web server is able to decrypt the data being sent to it. And that means the web server is exposed to the internet and your private key is sitting there, so it could be attacked and access could be gained. So you got to make sure that you secure that, harden your server, make sure your permissions are set right, and then this type of problem won't happen. They... Uh, uh, at least when I read the article the other day, they didn't really say how they think the certificate got out. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to see where you know where that ends up. Like, did an employee drop a thumb drive on the ground and somebody found yeah. it and had a cert, or did they actually break into a web server and get it? Inside I'm curious job. to hear that. It could That's be an guess. inside job, yeah. right? Um, it's a big company. You know, you take take IT Pro TV, right? There, there's uh, there's only a handful of people, but there are at least three of us that have access to the certificates for this company, and any one of us could could take that cert and sell it on the dark web, and the rest of us wouldn't necessarily know. And and any of the other employees could take you hostage and and probably get that same information. So <laughs> I, there there are I guess ways. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. So we'll we'll find out. Um, I mean, I know about all your gambling debts, and I, can I know I'm not walking to the car at night now. Nope. <laughs> uh, let's go over to a couple of articles we have in a row here from Android Police at AndroidPolice.com. Uh, Android P doesn't support WPS, and it may be gone for good. So WPS is a pretty standard. I guess it's an older. So uh, um, what WPS does is uh, makes it easy to connect to an encrypted uh, wireless network, right? Mm -hmm. So um, with WPS, or, you know, with a regular wireless network, if we've uh, used WPA, WPA2, or even WEP, there's a key. So somebody comes to visit your house, and they say, hey, Peter, can I get on your wireless network? And what do you do? You have to tell them the one key that you have. Well, now mm. they know it. Now they could tell it to other people, like, the key has been compromised at that point. And so that's a problem with doing key shares like that. Well, WPS was designed to be a stopgap because the only other solution was to do certificate services. And that would be even more annoying. Like, imagine you're... Your grandparents come to visit and, and, you know, hey, Peter, can I get on your wireless network? And you say, sure, Grandpa, let me just <laughs> issue you a X509 certificate here, yeah. a public key, private key pair, and we'll be in business. Yeah, that's not an easy thing it's to do. Happen. 
So with WPS, there'd usually be like a button on your device or a barcode or something like that. On the router. On the the router, yep. And and you would hit this button, and then a device like a cell phone or a tablet or a laptop could connect, and then it would issue a a, like a one-time password for that device, and it would be able to connect, and you wouldn't have to share the key with that person. So you could get these devices on. Sounds, Sounds like a good idea. But it did have some security flaws in it. It wasn't perfect. And when they announced WPA3 just a few weeks ago, they've already announced a successor to WPS that's going to replace it. So WPS is not long for this world anyway. What's significant here is that uh, Google is being one of the first companies to drop it. And Android P, which is expected to be announced in the next couple of months, um, probably closer to October, uh, rumored to be Android Pistachio, which... um, it's usually desserts. Is a pistachio even a dessert? Isn't that a nut? I mean, there's pistachio ice cream, but I feel like oh. maybe if we, all right, maybe the name, maybe the pistachio is a nickname. I didn't think about cream. pistachio ice cream. Uh, so anyhow, uh, Andrew P. That's all I think about. Is in uh, is in beta right now, and it's dropped WPS support. So uh, personally, I never used it anyway. I wasn't a big fan of it, but uh, a lot of people do, and it's uh, it, it will be a problem if you rely on WPS in your network and people start coming in with Android P devices, yeah. you're not going to be able to use WPS with them. And it's probably going to get worse over the next few years as people start to drop support. Yeah, I think the only time I've used it at home is, uh, um, and I can't remember what hardware it was, but I had a piece of hardware that I bought that instead of going to an app and setting it up, it just had a, the button to to do it that way. But So are, are we saying that something's going to replace it that will have that same kind of functionality? Or yes. It'll, okay. Yeah, D- WPA3 has a, a similar system that works that way, uh, but it's better. It fixes some of the problems that are in WPS. So so real quick, if I, if I had one of these devices and I pushed the button to let you get on, am I opening up my entire network at that point to anyone else? Or how does it know that just talk to your device? So it's it's a two-part thing, right? Like you're pushing the button on the router, and they're trying to connect from their phone. Okay. So that kind of has to happen at the same time. If uh, if you were to just push it on your router randomly, right? Yeah. In theory, a neighbor or somebody could hit that and, and connect, and then you'd have a real problem. Have to be pretty well-timed. Yeah, it, it would be like uh, just choosing to randomly leave your front door open. Uh, at the house, you know, maybe somebody walks through, maybe they don't. Who knows? Or choosing to have a, a Foscam camera in my home. Yeah, yeah, which is it's like having the front door open all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do often wave to you uh, when I'm sitting <laughs> on the couch and look over at the camera. Uh, all You're right, still I, using it after all these months? I, I still have it. Yeah. Do you know how cheap cloud cams are, and uh, the Amazon cloud cam, you, or the you know the how Nest? cheap staying with the same camera is? <laughs> it's cheap until I, uh, I would like you to show me though how you do it. I want to <laughs> I want to see if you can get into my camera. I don't know if I can get into yours. I can definitely get into one of my cabinet back there. That sure. one, yeah. yeah. This would be a fun experiment. <laughs> we're, doing, we're taking this show on the road <laughs> to in my driveway. Uh, all right. Uh, like I said, sticking with Android Police, uh, Android Studio Device Emulator now works with AMD processors and Hyper-V. So I know Hyper-V is something that it just gets you really excited. So. Yeah. It's got to be big for you. So this article didn't really apply to me, but I thought it would be good for the show. If you are a developer that works with Android... Or if you're a system admin that is having to do mobile device management for Android, then the odds are you've experimented with the Android emulator. And in the past, the Android emulator would only work on Intel systems, and it used its own virtualization platform that was actually uh, somehow based on VirtualBox in the background. So now uh, Google has updated that and added some more functionality so that it supports uh, AMD processors and separately, it supports Hyper-V. Like, it didn't support Hyper-V before. Now it does. And that's Hyper-V with AMD or Intel. doesn't matter. But in the past, it was only Intel that it supported. 
Now it also supports AMD. So uh, if you've got like an AMD laptop, you can run the official Android uh, emulator on your system. It's great for testing apps, developing apps, or even testing MDM. If you want to test like, can I remote lock a phone? You can fire up the Android emulator and you can test it and you can remote lock it and, and that kind of stuff. Um, I will give you a word of caution, which is that the uh, AMD support is very new. Uh, and it's supposed to operate at the same speed as the Intel support, but it hasn't seen a lot of testing. This is pretty recent news. This is from two days ago, um, three days ago. So, uh, you know, you might want to wait a little while to make sure they get all the kinks worked out. But uh, if you're one of those people that has an AMD processor and relies on Android, this will kind of cut out a little middleman and, and, and allow you to use the official emulator on your system. All right, fantastic. Well, uh, I know we mentioned last week or the week before we we talked about the iPad killer and how it's coming. Well, well, here it is on the Windows blog. Uh, meet Surface Go, starting at three hundred ninety nine dollars. It's the smallest and most affordable Surface yet. So just go ahead and throw your iPad in the trash. That's right. So the uh, the world of the netbook has gone full circle, and we're right back there with <laughs> miniature computers. Uh, you can tell either that guy's got the world's largest hand or it's a pretty small computer. The uh, The Surface Go, uh, the most significant thing about it is the price points, $399, which is priced comparable to an iPad, right? Uh, iPads usually start around that $400 mark, and uh, you know it's the, the Go tablet, which means that it runs Microsoft Windows. So unlike an iPad, where it'll only run iOS apps, this will run the entire collection of Windows binaries that are out there, which is tons and tons and tons of software. But it is targeting the low end of the market. And so you're not going to find the beefiest specs in the world. I just noticed the shoes that that person is wearing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you said guy before, and I don't think so. But uh, while you're yeah, on the yeah. photo real quick, oh. I just do want to say, you, you mentioned the hands. I, I, I did a double take on this photo the first time because it's like a flesh-colored jacket. So the, the left arm there it just looked very oh, odd yeah. to me, but then I realized it's it's the jacket. Strange. So, sorry right. for those of you listening on the audio-only version of the podcast. There's a yeah. really weird photo along with this article. Microsoft picked a strange one. Um, but anyhow, so if you if you take a look at the Go, it is the they consider it the lightest and most affordable service. So that, that's what they're promoting. The two big features are its weight and its cost, which means all the other features aren't worth talking about. Um, it is a, a, a one point. 1.15 pounds, so very, very light, uh, 8.3 millimeters thin, and it's got a 10-inch screen, which is pretty small. Now, most people have iPads that are like 9.7-inch, so this is very similar in size to the iPad, not like most small laptops. They're usually 12 to 13-inch in that range, so it's a little bit cramped for people to use as like a, an everyday computer, but for kids, that's a perfect size, and for people traveling, that works out really well. Um, the display does have a weird resolution. It's a uh, three by two, which, uh, you know, instead of like 16 by nine or, or whatever, uh, three by two is, is just a little odd, but that's because of the small form factor that it's trying to fit in. The other thing that I thought was interesting, and I'm, I'm trying to find it in the article, it's gotta be in here somewhere, is that, uh, it has an Intel processor. So we're not talking about ARM where, you know, you have to have compiled binaries or run cruddy Windows RT yeah. or this something. This is a full version of Windows. It's right. It's a full version of Windows. So you can run all your normal apps. They don't even have to be recompiled. Uh, here it is. Uh, a device powered by the seventh generation Intel Pentium Gold Processor 4415Y, blah, blah, blah. Now, that's not an i3 or i5 or i7. That's a, an Intel Pentium. So this is the, the, the one prior to the i generation. So, so you can run all your programs just very slowly. You can run all your programs assuming they were out 
eight or more years ago, right? So uh, if it's something old like QuickBooks, it's been around a long time, it'll run fine on here. But uh, some of your newer stuff, your video, don't expect to do great video gaming. Your, your mobile gaming, that's going to work fine on here, but uh, you, you're probably not going to be playing uh, Fortnite on this anytime soon. Um, the device itself they show here, it does have a detachable keyboard, which is cool, so it can operate in full-on tablet mode. Microsoft is sticking with that stylus, so they, they've got stylus support. Somebody somewhere uses a stylus, I swear, otherwise they wouldn't sell these things. That would be crazy. Yeah, what uh, gets me, though, is that uh, the keyboard, it just becomes unusable when, when you're talking about a 10-inch screen. That's, I mean, your, your hands are just overlapping it's, each other. It's I don't know how that works, but... Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this sells, and and honestly, uh, I think in a couple months we'll see what uh, what Apple does. Not in response to this, because I don't think Apple is making their decisions based on on what the Surface is doing, but yeah, um, yeah. you know what's going to go on with uh, new versions of the iPad or iPad Pro. So there's rumors going about unfounded. So you know we don't normally report on this stuff, but uh, uh, you know they Apple's had the 9.7 inch iPad and the 12.9 inch iPad. So I have the 12.9, which is just is, the Pro. Or is there a 12.9? Uh, yeah, just the Pro. Okay. Um, and I love my 12.9 inch iPad because it's got a keyboard that is a great size. I can type just as fast on That's it as like I can my laptop. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it really is. But it's big, and some people don't like that. On the 9.7, it's smaller, and the keyboard is smaller. It's harder to type. So the, the rumor is that Apple might be releasing an 11-inch iPad, one that's in between. Hmm. I've never used a, a device like that, so I don't, I don't know if that keyboard would be cramped or better. It might be the perfect mix, though, that gets you a device that's on the smaller side but has a decent-sized keyboard. We'll, we'll see. Those, those announcements will come out of Apple over the next month. I bought a little Bluetooth case for my uh, iPad mini that's got a keyboard on it. That is the most useless thing in the in the world. I can I, I can only do the yeah. Head, it's know, one finger thing. When they're that small, it's tough. And then Bluetooth, there's always a little delay, which yeah. is super annoying too. You, you got to have that hardware connector, which which this Surface does. Even at three ninety nine, it's got yeah. the hardware connector on it, um, which was yeah, right little, here. That those picture. are always great too. Those magnet ones, I, I, I mm -hmm. do like those a lot. Yeah, snap on them. Well, speaking of, of Microsoft, uh, this next one here over on TheVerge.com, Microsoft is updating the Windows Notepad app for the first time in years. And Don said, we're not doing that story unless they added support for, oh my God, they did. <laughs> so what was it that got you so excited? All right. For 20 years, easily. I, I can say that not exaggerating. Because um, <laughs> uh, when I first started getting involved in computers, uh, you know, I, I started with DOS. And, and kind of working in that environment. And then I moved over to a Solaris environment. Like I, I was working in Unix very early on before moving back over to Windows. And so I, I started using Windows and, and the Notepad app really back in 1995, I think. Uh, so about 23 years ago. And back then, all the documents I had made under Solaris, which is a Unix-based operating system, if I tried to open them in Notepad, in the Unix world, at the end of a line when you're typing a sentence, it does a line feed and that's it. But in the Windows world, it does a carriage return and a line feed. And so when you open a Unix formatted document on Windows, there's no carriage return at the end of the lines. It's just one big long line. So you could have five paragraphs and it just shows as one big fat paragraph. You lose all of your, your carriage returns. It, it's a mess. And so that was the comment I made to Peter before the show. I was like, Unless they've added support for Unix file types, I, let's not report on that one. And so I started scrolling down in the article, and sure enough, there it was. It's the first thing. Microsoft is adding extended line ending support to the Unix Linux line endings, the line feeds, and Macintosh line endings, which are just carriage returns, are supported in Notepad. So 
in the past, I would open a document, it would come up in Notepad, I'd get pissed off, close Notepad, <laughs> and then I would open it again in WordPad, and then in WordPad, you'd see it, and I, I always wonder, why, why does Microsoft have two yeah. word processors, even though Notepad was really simple? Um, so, so now they fixed it. They've added that. It's not the only thing. They've added a few other things in there, like you can zoom text. You used to have to edit the default font in Notepad, and it would change everything, but now you can just zoom. Um, I think they show it. Yeah, here, they have like a little uh, animation here. Uh, and control and, backspace uh, deletes the previous word. Yeah, that's important. That's yeah. big time. Yeah, because you don't want to hold backspace. That'd be crazy. Now, you know, most of this is over my head with the with the Unix line endings and stuff because I it's just not something I that that comes up in my day to day. But I feel like we had this story a few months ago about Microsoft supporting the the Unix line endings. Was that not in? in that was in then? the uh, Visual Studio Code, uh, their okay. their code editor that they released, which is multi platform. Uh, and it, and it supported, it, it was multi-platform, but they really focused on Windows, and now they kind of changed, they're supporting all the platforms. So yeah, it, it would have been in that one. Gotcha. Okay, so they're they're finishing it out now um, on their full line of products. Yep. So is there anything else that uh, that they need to fix still? Or no, they're, they're not good? really. I mean, they're, uh, they were adding a few things. There were rumors they were going to add tab support, but that's been killed off, so that's uh, that's not going to be in there. But that was the main thing. That, that support, I, I know it sounds like a little thing, but that has annoyed me for 23 years, and so now they're finally getting there and fixing it. The problem has been around longer than 23 years. It's just annoyed me personally for that long. I'll tell you, it makes that uh, new Surface Go look a little bit better now. Yeah. Yeah, still not doing that. It's but got, uh, It's got notepad. It's got the new you know, notepad. In that, And I've already closed it, but in that whole article about the Surface <laughs> Pad Go Pro, whatever it was yeah. called, um, they never said, amazing battery life. <laughs> like that, that, that wasn't mentioned anywhere in there. <laughs> with this, uh, with this battery, you can add on. Yeah. <laughs> they have a giant, giant power brick. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right, um, Microsoft is is making one more move here. We want to talk about. They're taking on Slack with the free version of Teams. So Slack is something that I mean, just in the last five years, has really uh, come out as as kind of the go to, and and it, and really what it replaced was was Skype for a lot of businesses, which is now owned by Microsoft as well. Yeah. So um, this is a, a new way that, that uh, Microsoft is trying to to take on Slack. So we, we use Slack here at IT Pro TV. It's how all the employees talk. And when you first start with Slack, it's free. You know, they have that free tier, and then you have to pay a little extra to get private rooms and all that stuff. Uh, and so before you know it, if you're anything like our company, you've got this massive Slack bill coming in every month. But it allows your team to communicate, so it is an important thing. So Microsoft is stepping in and competing, and, and they they stepped in last year when they announced the Teams software. So that was their first competition. It was included in all of the Office 365 account levels. So if you had Office 365, you had Teams, and so you could use that instead of Slack. Now, we, we never did here because I don't remember why. Why didn't we pick to go with Teams? Because Slack's so we, cool. We already had Slack. Yeah, yeah and it's give cool. you socks. They did send us socks, didn't they? Yeah. Maybe that was it. I, I did the Slack certification right after they stopped the sock sending program. Oh, so you didn't get any? Didn't get any socks. Oh, I gave mine to Adam. Yeah, well, that would yeah. have been nice. Could have, could have given them to you. You could have had Slack socks. I'm sure Adam already has that cert. Well, you know what? We'll wait, and then uh, maybe we'll get some Microsoft Teams socks. Ooh, there you go. And then we'll switch the whole company. But uh, uh, anyhow, so Microsoft was already competing, but they didn't have a free tier. So you had to be in Office 365 to use Teams. So now they're changing it, and there is a free version of Teams that is out there and available. So you can jump in there and start to leverage that. Uh, keep in mind that if you're used to Slack, then there might be a little bit of a um, transition pain to Learning go through. Curve, yeah. 
because I'll be honest with you, Microsoft Teams is so much easier to use than Slack that it'll probably trip you up. Like you're trying to remember all these crazy keyboard combinations from Slack, and then in Teams, it just, you know, you click a button. Does it still support <laughs> Giphy? You know, I don't know if it does Giphy or because not. That's, that's important. That's a mission yeah, critical I'm not, feature. I'm not getting involved with that if, if it doesn't. Uh, we can't throw Giphy in there. That's where we're going to have the pushback. Yep. So, uh, so anyhow, jump over to Microsoft's website. You can set up a free Teams group, uh, and once you're up and going, you're in business, and and there you go. You can try it out. It's a good Slack alternative. Right. Well, I, uh, I know we're running close on time here, but we've got a couple more stories we want to get to for you. Um, Microsoft uh, is smoking Amazon in the cloud. This is on uh, SeekingAlpha.com. So is this, Don, one of those uh, headlines that's going a little too far? Or? No. So sometimes it's hard to get actual numbers on which cloud providers are doing the best, and it gets a little confusing. Uh, you know, if you ask somebody, hey, name the top three cloud providers. So people say like, well, AWS is number one, but how do you know, right? So there's a few companies out there that gather that data together, and the reports have shown an interesting trend. And so let me bring up, they've got a, uh, oh man, it's a multi-page article. Uh, here we go. They've got a, a chart here that they put together, and it shows the market share by platform. And what's really interesting, if you look at it, the, the red is 2017, and the gray is 2016. And if you look, uh, both Amazon and IBM shrank, in market share, while Microsoft and Google increased. All right. So, if you look though, Amazon is still significantly ahead by uh, almost a solid ten percent um, over Microsoft. Actually, almost, yeah, almost ten percent over Microsoft. So it's, it's a big lead. But that growth, Microsoft grew by over five percent versus Amazon that shrank by about two percent. So it, it's really like a seven percent difference there. And that's why they say they're smoking them. Is that they're not ahead yet. Microsoft's not number one, but they're growing faster. More people are deploying into Azure. And what they theorized is driving this is people have recognized that relying on one company for your cloud service is not necessarily the greatest idea. There's been a few high-profile incidents lately where a company inadvertently violates a term of service and Google shuts off their entire account. Well, if all of your infrastructure is in Google Cloud, and they shut your account down, you just lost your entire infrastructure. So people are now doing hybrid cloud deployments and deploying across uh, Amazon and Microsoft or you know Microsoft and something else. And that way they've got that covered. If one cloud provider goes down, the other is still up. But Azure is definitely growing. IBM shrank a lot. And if you ask a lot of people out there, they'll say, IBM has a cloud service? Right, uh, and that's because IBM's numbers are a little skewed because they include their Z series mainframe numbers in that, uh, and most of us don't think of mainframes as a cloud service, but they offer that now. Uh, so it's not traditional virtual machines, although they do have that service if you want it. But it just shows that if you haven't looked into Azure, even if you don't like Microsoft, the platform is really, really slick. They've got great tools for deploying. You can do full Linux distros in the uh, in the environment, so you don't even have to touch Windows to use Microsoft Azure and take advantage of that. It is a great backup to uh, to AWS. Well, Don, I was saving it for the end, but uh, we do have a um, a webinar coming up. That, that tackles that very topic. So if you want to bring that slide up real quick, we can let people know um, that IT Pro TV will be hosting uh, a webinar in our series uh, on winning with the hybrid cloud 
um, and it, it talks about you know what the hybrid cloud is, how to balance uh, security with hybrid environments, and the different use cases where hybrid is king. And that is going to be featuring Mr. Ronnie Wong uh, with West Bryant. That's taking place on Wednesday, July 18th. Um, if you register for it and it, it's not a time that you can attend, um, by registering, you still get the recording after the fact. Um, so go ahead and do that. Even if you're not sure, you can attend. And you can do that by going to go.itpro.tv slash hybrid cloud webinar. And, uh, and definitely check that out because uh, that's gonna be an interesting one um, to kind of hear how that um, solution is, or when that solution is the right idea and how you can take advantage of it, so. Yep, and you'd be surprised how, uh, how easy it is to, to uh, you know, spread a solution, because when you're already deploying a solution in the cloud anyway, having it in more than one cloud is, is really not that difficult. So definitely something worth checking out. Uh, let's see. Let's move on to yep, our next Ubuntu. one. We had a little bit of Ubuntu, right? Yep. This one is on Ubuntu's blog, uh, and it says Minim minimal Ubuntu on public clouds and Docker Hub. So more cloud. All right. So uh, a lot of people working with containers, and uh, a lot of people are deploying containers built off of unofficial builds of distros that are out there. So it's good to see Ubuntu step into this place and say, we're going to create a build of Ubuntu specifically for container use. It's minimal, which is different than the minimal install of Ubuntu. The normal minimal install includes all sorts of hardware drivers to be able to get a server up and going. Here, a lot of those hardware drivers are missing because it's expecting to go into a container where you don't need hardware drivers like that. So it is absolutely minimal. Uh, it is below 200 megabytes, if I recall correctly. Uh, and uh, they've released it for Ubuntu 16.04 and 18.04. Both of those are long-term support releases. Uh, so they've released it not just for Docker, which I think is what was mentioned in the headline, but they also released it for EC2, Google Compute Engine, LXD, and um, OpenStack. So several different possible solutions there for that to roll out. Uh, you know, it is a, oh, you know, I said it was under 200 megabytes. And it says here it's uh, 29 megabytes. So very, very small, the smallest possible Ubuntu deployment. And the idea there is that if you're building a containerized application, you take this 29 megabyte image, and then you just add what you need to it. You don't have to worry about having any, any extra cruft in there. That reduces your attack surface, makes it faster to deploy, and makes your cloud solution more stable. All right, fantastic. All right, for our final, uh, last and final article here, uh, we wanted to save uh, a good one um, for last. And we're stretching to call this a tech story, but I'm going to go with it. <laughs> Technology's involved. Yeah. So uh, over on Engadget, I mean... They only report tech stories. Uh, a snake hidden in a hard drive fails to board a Miami plane. Uh, and no, it wasn't the Nokia snake. Uh, okay. Well, I went with a different way in my head of thinking, of course, about snakes on a plane. Yes. And that I, I'm sure this is Samuel L. Jackson um, trying to, uh, to to board this uh, this snake here. But that that's a big problem, apparently, is um, smuggling, smuggling these animals. Yeah, in this case, uh, I guess they... They had a external hard drive, you know, one of those big, it almost looks like a lacy drive or something, except it's got a USB 3 on it. Uh, and they took the Python, put it in a little... Looks like uh, pantyhose. Yeah, and just kind of tied it up and chucked it in there. Which, I'm sorry, if, the, if, a, if a snake can't get out of pantyhose, then yes. what, what's good is the snake? <laughs> There's so many ways this could go, Peter. I'm, I'm having a hard time. Uh, <laughs> All right, anyhow, so... Um, it's a metal hard drive case, so I'm, I'm assuming they felt like it would go through the x-ray machine and they wouldn't be able to see through the metal. They don't actually say how the agents realized it was in there, but they open it up, and sure enough, there was a ball python. Uh, ball pythons are not poisonous. Uh, they're also fairly small. That one looks kind of big. 
so they they said no one was really in any danger, but that it could have uh, uh, scared a passenger if it got loose, uh, as evidenced by Samuel Jackson. <laughs> or wrapped itself around a passenger's neck and killed said passenger. I suppose it could. I, I don't really know how long... And I, that's what that... these pythons do. I, I know these are the... Um, the animals that they're they're having such a big problem with in the in the Everglades because people had them as pets and then oh this is too big now and they release it mm. and then it's um, you know basically taking over as an apex predator and you know uh, choking out alligators down there that all right I mean I don't want to get involved in an alligator python fight well, but... maybe that's why this person was smuggling the python like they had an alligator problem back where they lived sure and uh, yeah gotta try and get that python. <laughs> Well, are they illegal? All I, I didn't think so. Well, maybe at certain sizes, but I would just think you know use FedEx like everyone else. Yeah, or she could have just like <laughs> registered as a uh, emotional support animal, oh, right? Right. Yeah. And well, though there was that story a few months back about the the woman who they told her to flush uh, her support hamster. I don't think that's how it's supposed to work. It's, it's not. It's like the opposite that of emotional so support. support. It's, it's a cathartic experience. <laughs> We're gonna make you kill your animal. Yeah. That that'll that'll help a lot. Yeah, it's like uh, <laughs> it's like the end of Kingsman. It's a crazy world that we live in, yeah, and uh, we just report on it. It's uh, it's a fun time. Well, we mentioned <laughs> earlier a lot of these security problems could have been fixed with proper training, and proper training, as I mentioned, can take place over at IT Pro TV, our sponsor here on Technado. Uh, and if you use the promo code. Podcast 30, you can get 30% off the lifetime of your subscription and really makes it a tremendous deal. And when you think about not just the money uh, that you're saving versus other trainings, but the money you're saving by not spending the millions of dollars uh, when you're sued uh, for all these these terrible problems that can happen in your company, it's it really pays for itself in that way. So go ahead and check that out over at ITPro.tv uh, with the Podcast 30 coupon code. So Don, any final thoughts today? I'm just wondering how many terabytes of data you can store on a ball python. All right, we'll look into that, and uh, <laughs> we'll have that answer for you next week right here on the Technado. <laughs>